Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attack. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owens. This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Dale Lorenzo from Hades, nonfiction, The Cursed, and my horrible solo music. You listen to my boy Victor on Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Ron Bumble for Fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windorf from Monster Magnet, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Kiska talking, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Stilter, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attack. Hey, what's up everybody? It's Don Jameson from That Metal Show on VH1 Classic, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Crank it. Hey everybody, this is your big daddy-o, Gene Hoagland, who has played with your favorite metal bands, and you are listening to Mars Attacks Radio. Hey, this is Kurt Winstein from Crowbar, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. This is Alan Tecchio from Autumn Hour, Hades, Nonfiction, Watchtower, Minds, Mirrors, and other assorted bands, and you're listening to Mars Attacks Radio. Hey, Metalheads and Headbangers, this is Doro Cash, and you're listening to Victor here on Mars Attacks Radio. I wish you a great time, rock on, and keep metal alive. Hi, it's Carolina Peace, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yow! Hi, yeah, okay, so hey, this is Paul Shortino. How you doing? Formerly of Rough Cut, Quiet Riot, and currently with King Cobra. You're listening to Mars Attack. <laughs> Hello, this is Dave Reffitt, and you're listening to Mars Attacks with my good buddy Victor. Crank it up. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Mark from Chimera, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Mira there to kick things off here on the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and this is episode 48 of the podcast. That was Chimera with Clockwork coming off of the great, great new album, The Age of Hell. Uh, Chimera is probably the perfect example 
of a band where whenever a new album comes out, I dig it a lot more than the previous album. And it's funny because you always have the diehards that come out of the woodworks and say, you have no idea what you're talking about. You know, this album is better or that album is better. Well, I absolutely love this album. I think it does show a lot of diversity. I do kiss um, Mark Hunter's ass in a, a bunch of different places during the interview that will be featured during this episode uh, because I do enjoy the album that much and you know there are some interviews that I have on the show where you know I do it out of favor for say a label or a PR person that uh, is working with a group to help get them established or whatever And uh, this is definitely not the case with either of the two interviews that you're going to hear. You're also going to hear an interview with Dave Reffitt from his project Shredding the Envelope. This album did come out sometime last year, but uh, I reached out to Dave for help uh, getting in touch with Glenn Drover, actually, former Megadeth guitarist for the Classic Albums column. And uh, actually, I hit it off real well with Dave. Dave is a really great guy. Um, If it wasn't for him, you wouldn't be hearing a lot of the people that are going to be making their way to the Classic Albums column. So I do have to uh, send thanks out to Dave right from the start because, again, if it wasn't for him, uh, people like, well... Like I said, um, Glenn Drover, um, people like uh, Mike Orlando from Adrenaline Mob, uh, and a bunch of others that I don't want to uh, reveal as of yet. But uh, yeah. Uh, Anyway, I was talking about Chimera there for a second. Chimera is one of these bands that has been around for, as what Mark is going to mention, 11 years now is when they were back on the farm club. Uh, We're going to touch on that point briefly. But uh, yeah, it's a band that has established themselves as a metal force. And um, it's interesting because Mark has taken to Twitter to sort of give people, you know, I don't want to say, you know, cliches like, uh, I don't know, the underbelly of metal. No, he's, you know, talking about things that have happened to him uh, with Chimera and along the way as being, you know, a musician or, you know, a metal artist or however you want to put it. Uh, if you've listened to other interviews that I've done in the past, for example, Jerry Garcia, now the former bass player of Bonded by Blood, uh, he's actually working on a project called Wormhole with former Bonded by Blood uh, lead singer Jose Barales and a few other people, um, Andrew and their drummer. Slips my mind right now, I do apologize. But anyway, uh, the point that I'm trying to get at is I interviewed him while he was on the road here in Spain with Bonded by Blood. And, you know, I talked to him, I talked to the guys from Lazarus AD, and there are certain realities of the road, you know, that people think just because you're signed to, you know, Earache or Metal Blade or Roadrunner, that you're set for life, and that's so far from the truth. And what I did with that interview with uh, Jerry was try to get some of that out. You know, he mentioned stuff like Metal Illuminati to me. Um, And I apologize if I didn't pronounce that right. But, um, yeah, it's a site that helps, you know, 
metal artists sort of network with one another and help one another out as opposed to, you know, going the old traditional route. Um we also discussed uh, the documentary that Rat Skates is working on, the former drummer of Overkill. The name of his, you know, documentary, and if you've seen, if you've seen the trailer, it's, you know, I, I don't know if breathtaking is the word or what, but you know, you're speechless after seeing it because there are some harsh realities regarding the music industry that are mentioned there, uh, and. The name of his documentary is Welcome to the Dream. Uh, some people pointed out when Mark was talking about uh, some of the things that he's come across, you know, there's poverty in North Africa or, you know, um, go dig a ditch or blah, 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 you know, just different things like that. And yeah, you know, obviously, you know, miners are worse off or, you know, certain other people are worse off in the world, you know, and I don't think... There's any way that he's trying to say this to belittle any of that or to, you know, just bitch about things for the sake of things. But there are certain realities, you know, along with being a musician. And some of the people that may have spoken out maybe forgot about what it was like to struggle with some of these things. Or maybe they've been lucky, you know, to have a great career so far and are part of that, you know, 1% that can live 100% off of, you know, their music. Uh, Someone else that I interviewed this week, Richard Christie, now part of the Howard Stern Show, was part of Death, was part of Ice to Earth, and flat out, he says during the interview that he got into Howard, you know, in the mid-90s, you know, being part of some of these bands, being an electrician, you know, when he wasn't on the road, he was an electrician digging ditches, doing all these different things, to stay alive, you know, to to put food on the table. The harsh reality is a lot of musicians are like that, you know. They do things when they're not on the road. Uh, this is no longer the 80s. <laughs> you know, people are not making millions of dollars. And, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, are out there saying that, well, you know, it's all the torrents, it's all this, it's all that. no. It's not. In my opinion, it's not. You know, and I I saw Scott Ian mention this this past week. Um, I don't remember if it was Twitter or if it was, you know, a blog post or whatever. Musicians have to stop blaming torrents, okay? Yes, it is a big factor with what has taken place. But for everyone that has come out of the woodworks and praised Steve Jobs after he died... um, You also have to credit him for changing the dynamics of the music industry, okay? Uh, Before iTunes came along, and, you know, Napster had a, you know, a big chunk to do with what happened. There's no doubt about it. But Jobs was smart enough to pretty much take the, take and build a business model around what Napster was doing. He figured out. People don't want to buy albums anymore. Okay, that's the fact of the matter. Any artist that is out there that is able to tour and wants to bitch about album sales, why don't they tell you how many, you know, single 
uh, track downloads are being sold off of iTunes. How does that factor into things, okay? And it's not their fault. Um, I talked to Dave Reffitt about this a little bit, um, about you know how downloads ha- have affected him, for example. And I'm not saying it hasn't affected an artist like Dave Reffitt. Uh, with his project Shredding the Envelope. That album came out last year. So the whole dynamics of the music industry is different to what it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And a lot of what has taken place, in my opinion, comes from the music industry not knowing how to change with the times. Okay, If you look at things, if you look at the inception of digital music and the downloading of everything, uh, the labels bitched about how everything was going to work. There are so many services that were started up. Sony started up a service. Then, you know, Warner started up something else. BMG started something. They could never come to an agreement as to what was going to happen. You know, for whatever greedy reason, they couldn't say, all right, let's get together and work on this. Jobs was able to do that. And at the same time, again, he took that uh, sort of uh, markets research that Napster did for them and for everyone else and said, screw it, we're going to offer tracks individually. Why is this so important? Because for so long, labels refused to put out a single. When you went out and MTV used to air videos and they aired a video for a song, regardless whether it was, you know, metal, it was, you know, pop rock, you know, it was glamour, however you want to call it, uh, if it was rap, anything else, you were forced to pay... 16 to 20 some odd dollars to buy an album that ultimately sucked and only one single was worth a damn thing. And after that, people would turn around and sell that album and either copy that song onto a tape at that time uh, or, you know, at the inception of CD burning, burn that onto a CD and they got rid of the original CD. That's the fact of the matter. The other thing... Um, and I do have to apologize to the author, uh, Mitch Lafon from Brave Words posted this on Facebook, but there's an author out there that mentioned something else that was very interesting. During the 90s, all of these artists enjoyed the fact that the music industry once again screwed the consumers by putting out cheap vinyl albums and then cheap cassettes Forcing people to buy CDs. So a lot of the sales that happened in the late 80s throughout the 90s were directly, you know, it was a direct correlation of people changing over from their LPs and cassettes over to CDs. So there was a big spike in sales at that point in time because let's be honest, it was much easier to carry around the cassette and then a CD which didn't have all the different wrinkles that, you know, well, if a tape was wrinkled or whatever, you weren't able to listen to it in your car or your car, you know, chewed up the tape because the heat or blah, blah, blah. You know, people that know all about tapes know what I'm talking about. Uh, Yes, CDs got scratched or whatnot, but you were able to throw a bunch of them in to, you know, some type of CD album or organizer or whatever, 
throw them into your car, and it was much easier for the consumer to take around. You know, so for anyone that wants to say that Torrance or Napster or everything else is 100% responsible with the downfall of the music industry, I don't buy it 100%. Does it have something to do with it? Yes. But is it, you know, is it the lone reason? No. Look at iTunes. Look at, uh, once again, the labels... Not only screwing consumers, but screwing artists, <laughs> as they've always done. And look at the artists themselves. You know, you go out and ask Lars Ulrich and ask him if he would bitch about Napster in this day and age the way that he did back then and realize the adverse effect that, you know, took place. And I'm sure that every time that one of these artists complains about you know, so-and-so downloading, that just makes people go out and download more. Uh, you know, and for everyone that complains about that being stealing or whatnot, um, it's part of the game now. And I can guarantee you that if, you know, if there's some sort of, um, some type of policing of this, if it's put into place, you're going to see a further downfall of music sales because I think more people will be pissed off, less people will want to legally buy music, and you'll see less people show up to shows as a result. So there's a very fine line uh, as to what is going to take place here in the next few years. And I honestly see services like Kickstarter and Pledge Music as the way to move forward with uh with the way that the music industry is going to go and if you don't know how these services work check them out for example i just received a a download from city of fire city of fire is a side project for burton c bell and and byron stroud of fear factory and what you can do through pledge music in this case is a band decides all right I want to finance this project. I don't want to go through labels to hassle me with all this different stuff. Uh, so what they do is they offer the download of their album for 10 bucks, um, maybe a, a signed CD for 15 or 20 bucks, um, T-shirt with CD combo, posters, you know, so on and so forth. There are some really cool things that are being offered, you know. Um, these guys offered an iPod with unreleased tracks uh, with, you know, their new album they're working on and with their previous album. There are other bands that have offered, you know, uh, bootlegs and things like that where you're going to be one of the only people that are ever going to hear these tracks uh, maybe dinner with the band, introing the band, singing on the band's album, um, so on and so forth. You know, I think these are really cool options, and it gives you know fans things to really grasp and want to say. All right, you know, I love this band. I'm gonna go out and spend twenty bucks. I'm gonna go out and spend fifty bucks. Or for people that are, you know, have a lot of pocket change and are fanatic followers of a band, want to spend seven hundred bucks on a autograph guitar. You know, it makes sense. Uh, there are people that are financing their tours this way. And for example, Ginger, the lead singer of the band The Wild Hearts, uh, he's putting out an an album, a solo album, for people that are within Pledge Music that are you know, pledging on this album and financing it, you're going to get three albums worth of material for $25, okay? 
uh, or a little more, it's 25 pounds. Uh, from there, you're going to help choose what songs he's actually going to put out on a major label. So he's actually going to go the commercial route as well. But in the meantime, fans of his music will have a say in what tracks actually get out there. And I think that's super cool for these bands to do that. Also, for bands, people that are you know going to go out and buy stuff like this, people that are going to go out and pledge on an album, aren't going to go out and post your albums to the web. Why? Because they're spending money on a band that they absolutely love. Uh, maybe you're going to have a reduced amount of people that buy these albums, but you know that it's going to be, you know, a thousand people that go out and spend, you know, uh, money on the download or on the physical CD. Uh, the physical CD, let's say you have a thousand people. Let's say you have, uh, you know, 10,000 people that want to buy the download. You have, you know, three people that want the autographed guitar. You know, these are all things that. I think are going to make sense moving forward with the industry and you don't have the same you know dichotomy that you currently have where bands are getting screwed out of money where labels you know aren't structured correctly and and I'm not saying this about all labels there are some great labels out there but they're labels that are now corporations and see music as a commodity unfortunately and you know, aren't willing to put out certain things or have mothballed a lot of great albums that, you know, in a digital format, there's no reason whatsoever why they're not offering certain albums. None whatsoever. But because they don't find it feasible or they don't think that it's, you know, that it makes sense to, to put out there, you're giving people another reason to download this stuff for you know off of a torrent site. I'm sorry, but that's just how it is. So anyway, I apologize for the long rant. And uh, for any of you that I've bored with this, uh, please hang in there. We have the Dave Reffitt interview coming up right now. Um, before that, we're going to get into a track of his. And, um, you know, just... His his project, Shredding the Envelope, well, the name of the album is actually The Call of the Flames. And here are some of the people that worked with him on the project. You have Joe Stump, you have Michelangelo Batio, you have Glenn Drover, who I mentioned before, Chris Poland, George Lynch, uh, Gabe Taylor, Mike Mangini, who uh, has been in the metal news recently because he's joined Dream Theater, but uh, he's got all these people guest starring on the album. Mangini actually plays all the drums throughout the album. And uh, the first track that we're going to get into is the one with George Lynch. It is called uh, Caravan of Cannibals. And it's got a great, great chorus that gets stuck in your head, at least for me anyway. And um, once again, he's commented... Dave Reffitt, that is, for the Classic Albums column. If you don't know what that is all about, it's various people from the music industry who are commenting on different albums. Uh, up to now, we've put out Metallica's Injustice for All, uh, Cleansing by Prong, Queens of the Stone Age, Songs for the Deaf, and Van Halen 2 by Van Halen. And uh, next week, we'll have Tools Anima. Mark Hunter from Chimera has also lent his comments to the Tool album, and hopefully he'll be commenting on additional albums in the future. We've also got a whole slew of guests from 
other sites that are collaborating. And uh, we'll get into that later on in the episode. I've babbled enough for now. Let's get into the track from Shredding the Envelope that I just mentioned, uh, Caravan of Cannibals, and we'll jump right into the interview with Dave Reffitt.
with Shredding the Envelope, the album obviously has a bunch of different guests on the, the, the album itself. Tell us a little bit about how the album was put together, how it was written. Did you have these guests in mind when you put the album together or, you know, as you were writing stuff and actually recording the album, did did you feel that the music sort of asked you to get, you know, certain people involved in the album? Uh, that's a really good question. Yeah, the, um, basically, like, I had been in a bunch of different bands throughout my career, you know, when I was younger and stuff and, and done some cool things, you know, done some cool tours and that sort of thing. But nothing was really ever where I wanted it to be. And I kind of got frustrated playing with, um, with um, you know, players that we didn't get along or we didn't feel the same way about things, that sort of thing. And um, so what I wanted to do was, you know, when I got out of school, I wanted to kind of just create the music that I wanted to hear, really. You know, I, I had worked at some different record companies and stuff like that. I got my degree in business, and I went to work at some different record companies. I worked at Virgin Records, you know, and I, I promoted, like, the Rolling Stones and Meatloaf and Janet Jackson and a bunch of different bands, and that was awesome. I loved it. And I was also at Sanctuary, um, you know, where we had Megadeth and Anthrax and Kiss and a bunch of stuff. And um, it's a drag because I kind of saw the writing on the wall that, you know, like there basically are no jobs in the music business anymore. And um, just the, just the stress of that and, like, also the stress of dealing with people that don't even like music really. You know what I mean? Like hmm. like they could be selling cars on a lot. You know, they don't really give a fuck. Yeah. And um, so I just kind of I got kind of got sick of promoting artists. Um, a lot of the artists I liked. You know, and then a lot of them, I just, you know, it was it was hard to, I gave it my all because that's who I am. You know, I give it my all on things, but um, some of the acts, I just didn't want to do it anymore. You know, I, I had to get back to making my own music. And so with this record, I wanted to make like just a really killer, you know, thrashy hard rock record and kind of just celebrate everything that I like about music. And um so when the songs started to come together, I mean, I have a ton of songs, but but these were the songs that were the most done, you know, that I had lyrics for and everything like that. And um, I think the way that I was feeling at the time, you know, all the songs came out very aggressive and very, you know, fast and thrashy. Uh, most of them are. So that's why, you know, like probably on the next record, there'll be some, some different variety. There'll be some ballads and all kinds of different stuff. But on this one, it's just a lot of crazy guitar and a lot of, you know, thrashy riffs and stuff. <laughs> and when I was writing it, um, the idea to have guests on it really was kind of two different things. There was a record by um, Annihilator called Metal that had come out. Right. Mm -hmm. And I had just gotten to jam with, um, when I was at Berkeley, I got a job. They hired me to play at these kind of like, there are like these little summer camps where these kids come to study at Berkeley and they get to play with different people or whatever. And they hired me to play as a backing guitarist for a class that Mike Mangini was teaching. So that was pretty cool. I got to play, I got paid to play with Mangini. So that was sweet. <laughs> and, um, he had, they had just put out that Annihilator CD that he played on. I thought that was a great record, and, and I liked how they had a lot of cool special guests on it. You know, they had, like, right. a bunch of different guitar players. So when I was producing my record, I was like, man, I wonder who I would get, you know, like, and I started to think about it. 
And uh, there was a guitar clinic that Michelangelo did, Michelangelo Badio. He's a really cool dude. And I went to his clinic, and um, I was thinking, man, I might as well just ask him. You know, all, all he can do is say no. And, <laughs> right. uh, yeah, you know. And so he was like, yeah, man, sounds cool. Send me some music, and, you know, I'll let you know what I think. And they got back to me right away. They they dug the music. And so I was like, wow, that's that's awesome. I wonder who else, you know, would do it. And so I just started to think about different people. And uh, a good friend of mine at the time, he had recently gotten me really into George Lynch. And I and I was like, wow, man, I can see why, why everybody likes this guy so much. He's, he's awesome. And uh, so I asked George, and uh, he wanted to get involved too. So I was like, fuck, this is great. <laughs> and then uh, Chris Poland from Megadeth. You know, I, I always loved his playing on P-Cells and Killing Is My Business and the system has failed and all that. And uh, so I got him to play on it and he does a killer job. And I always liked his really jazzy sensibility that he has, you know? Right. And then Glenn Drover, uh, I had met him. I took a guitar lesson off him when uh, he was still in Megadeth. And I uh, went up to Canada to take a lesson off of him. So that was pretty cool. And uh, he was like, sure, man, you know, he, he wanted to play on it too. So that was great. And then with Mike Mangini, you know, I knew I knew him from, uh, you know, having jammed with him at Berkeley, and I figured the kind of music that I wanted to make, I was like, man, he's the only guy I know that can pull it off, you know, because to find a drummer of that caliber is, you know, pretty damn hard to do. Right. So it was a long answer, but <laughs> <laughs> hope that answers it. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And... um uh, I mean, were, were there any other people that you wanted to get involved and couldn't manage to uh, get them involved in this project? Or um, did you more or less, were, were you able to nail everyone down that you had gone after? I got pretty much everybody I wanted to. Um, at the time, I was still very green. You know, I was still like kind of just learning what I was doing as I did it. And um, so like some people like, like Chris Poland, I got him by hitting him up on MySpace. Right. <laughs> and then I tried um, Kerry King the same way because I had a there was a solo on the record that was perfect for him, like a lot of crazy whammy, whammy bar stuff. So I tried him on MySpace too. And uh, looking back on, it, I you know I, I should have gone through the management or something. Right. You know, but um, but it worked out with with other guys. So I figured, what the hell, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> So I didn't get Carrie. I also tried, um, I really wanted to get Dave Mustaine. I mean, he's such a huge star, you know, that's tough to do, but it, w- it would be great to do something with Dave someday. He's a, he's a great songwriter and great player. And uh, who else, Jeez. I wanted Halford to sing on a song. That would have been sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Halford and uh, Sebastian Bach's another one. I've, I've always loved Sebastian's voice, you know. Not many people can sing like that, so I thought it'd be right. cool to get him on a track. Um, so on the next one, who knows, man? Sky's the limit, I guess. <laughs> if you had, you know, um, five artists that you would absolutely want to get involved, money isn't an issue, lawyers or whatever aren't an issue, uh, who would those five people be? That's a really good question. Um, Ozzy, undoubtedly. Absolutely want to play with her. I'd love to play for Ozzy. Like that would be like the dream gig, dude, to, to tour with Ozzy and playing records and all that. Um, there's a country artist named David Allen Coe 
who I really, right. really like a lot. He got in trouble back in like the seventies, eighties. He did some kind of racist kind of shit, you know? And, right. um, you know, I, I don't like that stuff. I mean, that stuff's horrible, but, but I'm from the South, you know? So like, like his drinking songs, his love songs, that stuff's incredible. Like just, he's a great songwriter. Be cool to work with him on something cool. Uh, he did an album with Don Daryl actually. Right. With the Pantera guys. So he's another one. Um, Dio's gone, not with us anymore. So that's impossible, but that's another one. Like, you know, Dio would have been incredible. I always loved Dio. It'd be great to play with him. Uh, Dave Mustaine's another one. And, um, if Dime, if Dimebag was still alive, I would say Dimebag too. Um, but it's hard to think of anybody else. I'm sure there's somebody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe Guns Maybe Guns N' Roses. Me and the original Guns N' Roses. Right? There you go. Hey, they're playing with three cool. gu- three guitars now, so. Exactly. <laughs> um, if you were able to put a s- similar type of a deal, if you were able to put a sort of a dream band together to go out and tour with, um, who would the other components be? That's a good question, man. I've often thought about that. Jeez. Um, Me on uh, guitar, on vocals, man. It would, you know, maybe Halford or Sebastian Bach or somebody. Um, and like I said, if Dio was alive, I'd go Dio. Right. Or Ozzy. Ozzy's fantastic. Um, Vinnie Paul on drums. Or... There's a lot of good drummers. I like. Uh, I think Mangini is amazing. I like. Um, I like Bobby Jarzombak from Halford. I think he's a great drummer. Um, and bass player, who knows, man? You know, Gene. Get Gene Simmons on. <laughs> Gene could set some go. stuff on fire or something. Right? Oh, that's probably the other one, man. I'd like. To, I'd like to work with uh, Paul Stanley or somebody. You know, I think. I think Paul's a, a brilliant songwriter. Okay. That would be cool. As far as when the album came out, and the album is the, the Call of the Flames, what was the reception like? Uh, you'd worked at a label before, so obviously you know what it's like to go out and promote an album. What was the reception like, and was it what you had anticipated, or was it better or worse than what you had expected going into the project? I've been totally blown away by the... Um the response, honestly, like the, the amount of love I've gotten from people. And, um, like we were talking about there earlier, you know, Bruce Dickinson played me on the air and said I was fantastic and, you know, and said it was a must have album and stuff. So like for one of my all time heroes from when I was a little kid, you know, first metal band I ever got into for the singer to say all those nice things. I mean, that was, that was insane. And, um, you know, I had really, my anticipation was I hoped people would like it. You know, and, um, but I think it really exceeded anything I could possibly thought, you know, like I got so many great reviews from people, you know, like there was a magazine in Europe, one of the big ones that gave, uh, gave it a 9.5 out of 10, you know, and it was like one of the highest ratings they'd ever given anybody and stuff. And it was the highest rating in that issue. Like it was higher than Slash and Annihilator and all these great bands. So that was pretty incredible. Um. I've, I've had I've met a lot of big stars that liked it, you know. That's so that's a great feeling, and um, you know it's gotten me. You know, I've been in Guitar World a bunch. I've been in magazines all over the world. So it's 
I was really, um, really, really pleased with how it worked out. And uh, for me, I just, I just wanted to make an album that I would be really, really proud to buy, that I would be like first in line, uh, that I'd be excited about. Like I tried to put myself in, in the mind frame of that, you know, the young kid that I was who was like, you know, like the new Metallica was coming out tomorrow and I had to be there to get it. You know what I mean? Right. So that's the kind of like, like I, I thought of like that young kid and like, you know, I didn't want him to be disappointed when he got it. You know, like when they got it, they were like, fuck, this is great. You know, right. I figured if I could, if, if I could do that, I was doing something right. And, um, and I still love the album, man. It's, it's been out for, uh, almost two years now. And when I listen to it, I still just love it. I go crazy over it. And, uh, you know, I take a step back from it sometimes and come back to it and just can't believe some of it. And it's great. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm really proud of it. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've been really blessed with the, uh, response to it. Okay. You mentioned the, uh, comments that Bruce Dickinson had made. Would you say that that is the greatest compliment from a known artist that you received, or have there been any others that really blew you away or surprised you? That would probably, yeah, that's way up there, dude, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's just like, like I said, I mean, that was the, um, when I was in grade school, like middle school or something, uh, my friend got me into Maiden. Yeah, that was like the first metal band that I uh, really, really went crazy over. Okay. So um, that was a big deal to me. Okay. And 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 a huge thing, you know, just having guitar players that I look up to that I've known for years and that I've known about, you know, having them know me now and respect me and stuff. I mean, that's that's a really cool thing. So that's the other that's the other one that's that's a big deal to me is is uh, getting that respect, you know. That's that's a really really cool thing for me. Cool. Okay. And as far as what you're working on now, you mentioned that there were a few things that you couldn't mention or that you had to wait to mention. Is there anything that you can discuss regarding uh, any upcoming projects? Um, yeah, there's a bunch of different stuff in the works. I'm not really at liberty to to mention any names or anything like that, but it's it's definitely you know well-known people that are uh that i'm thrilled to be working with and, and i'm excited to unleash it for sure and um and then as far as my stuff uh i've been writing some new stuff of my own and i really hope to get it out there soon i think it's great stuff and and i definitely want to um outdo this one if i can you know i'll give it all i got okay cool and um tell us uh a little bit about your gear we talked about it a little uh off record per se tell us a little bit about um what you use in the studio and what you use in a live environment um i have a signature model guitar with esoteric guitars they're a company out of san luis Obispo, california and uh the guy he's a smart guy he um the owner of the company ryan cook he makes all the guitars too and um, he used to work at Ernie Ball, and he really learned his craft there, and he became really, really good. And, uh, and then he's now he also works with National, which makes, like, really high-end, fancy country guitars. Right. And um, with Esoteric, he gets to really make the guitars that he wants to make, which are, you know, like metal guitars. You know, he's a big metal guy, too. And uh, he came to me 
and uh, wanted to know if I wanted to do a signature model, a Dave Riffin model, and, and I was like, man, that sounds great. I said, I definitely got to play them first, you know, make sure they kick ass, and um, he sent me one, and I really, really dug it a lot, and uh, I used it on some Guitar World videos and stuff, and um, they're just amazing, man. They're, um, you know, to have an instrument of that caliber is something you can only dream about when you're a kid, you know, like, you know, I didn't come from money or anything, so... So to have people giving me, you know, these really fancy, expensive guitars that are made just for me and in right. my honor. So, I mean, that's fucking huge. I mean, that's <laughs> something I never thought would happen. And um, they play amazingly. They're uh, Most of them are mahogany, walnut, and figured maple. And then the neck is ebony, the, the fretboard's ebony. And, uh, I mean, you can get different wood combinations, but that's the combination I like. And it's got a Floyd Rose Pro series on it, uh, whammy bar. And it's got Seymour Duncan blackout pickups, which I really love a lot. Uh, they get, like, you can get all the super heavy, you know, rhythm guitars and all the really searing high leads and all that. But you can also, a lot of versatility to them as well. You, know, you can really get all kinds of tones. And um, so that's my primary guitar. And then I've got my, um, I got a couple of those. And you can you can get different ones, which is kind of cool. Like we wanted to keep it fun for people, and like like I'm a Seymour Duncan guy. I always have been, but we right. know that some people like EMGs, so you have the option of getting EMGs if you want. And also, um, you know, you can get a Floyd Rose, you can get a Kaler, you can get you know just a regular traditional bridge, stop tail bridge, whatever they call them. So it's right. pretty cool. Um, if, if anybody's going to be out at the NAMM show this year coming up, the 2012, we're going to be there. So stop by and play them, man. You'll 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 definitely dig them. They're, they're fantastic. And um, my other guitar, I have a bunch of guitars. I've got I've got a bunch of classical nylon string guitars. I've got some acoustics. But my other main electric that I like to play a lot is um, my girlfriend bought me a uh, a Gibson Flying V years ago. And that has sentimental value, and I just I, I love it too. Gibson Flying V. It's like a cherry. It's got a Seymour Duncan dime bag pickup in it, and uh, it really kicks ass too. I like that guitar quite a bit. For amps, I like um, I use Eminence speakers. They make really really good speakers. Uh, those guys have been really good to me. I endorse them as well. Um, I endorse Seymour Duncan's and uh, for my pickups. And then for amps, I like uh, I like a bunch of different amps. It really depends on what I'm going for. But I have a PV6505 Plus that I really like. That's probably my main amp that I use. Sometimes I'll go for a Marshall or a you know a Mesa Boogie if there's a particular sound I'm going for or whatever. But the but the PV always kicks ass. It always seems to be a, a cut above the rest for me, for what I like to do. And for picks, I mean, you know, you, you wouldn't think that this is important. I play Dunlop um, Jazz 3 picks exclusively. That's, like, all I'll play. And I recommend them to everybody because, like, you know, you can play really fast, really accurate, all that kind of stuff. Like, definitely recommend those. Okay. As far as uh, tuning is concerned, what do you usually tune to? What uh, other tunings can we find say on the uh call the flames cd the call the flames is is strictly in uh a440 it's in standard tuning 
that's how I like to tune. I know a lot of bands tune way down and all that stuff, and I just I think that you kind of lose some of the response, you know, that you get from uh, like A440 just has like a nice response to it. And um, you know, if I'm working with a particular artist that likes to tune down to E flat or something, I'll certainly do that. You know, I've done it before. But for me, for my stuff, I like to play in E. And um, you know, sometimes you have to tune down considering. You know, you got to work with the singer, right? You know, like if the singer, right? You know, if he likes to sing in D, sometimes you might have to go a whole step or whatever down. I write in. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll write it. I've got a bunch of songs written in drop D, but I haven't recorded any yet. But uh, there probably will be some that turn up. I always like drop D. Eddie Van Halen, you know, I used it on uh, Unchained and a bunch of stuff. Right. And uh, for acoustic stuff, I really like. D A D G A D, which is some kind of D open, like a modal. I think it's some kind of modal tuning, but that's a right. cool one. Like it's it's got a lot of pretty kind of Celtic kind of sounding stuff. I, I like to mess around with that, and I've got two or three songs written in that that hopefully I'll get out there someday. And they're really beautiful. They're like really beautiful songs, and I want to make sure that the lyrics do them justice. You know, because you can't have like a right a big, epic, beautiful, you know, song with dopey lyrics. You know, it's got to make sense. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, there are plenty of bands already doing that for you. So if, uh-huh. uh, if you're, if you're going to do that, you might as well take the extra effort and yeah. make sure that you got the whole package out there. Absolutely. As far as your next album, uh, when can we expect to see that? Do you have a specific timetable set up? I'd like to have something out in... Uh... I mean, definitely in 2012 sometime. I mean, I, I wanted to have something out this year, but it's already September. <laughs> Life comes at you fast, like that commercial says, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, 2012, definitely something. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And, and this other project that I've been doing has been um, taking a lot of my time, and that's going to be a really exciting thing uh, when it does come out. So I'm I'm happy about that. What is the ETA on that project? Hopefully next year on that one too. Yeah, it it, it kind of got sidelined a few times, so but but definitely next year. If people want to find out about what you're up to, purchase the Shredding the Envelope CD, so on and so forth, where should they go? For the record, um, it's on iTunes. It's on Amazon. BestBuy.com is a really good place to get it. I think they have it for like $9.99 or something. Um, it's all over the place. iTunes is good, like I said. Uh, CD Baby, all over the place. Um, to to, fig- to find stuff about me, you can go to... Uh, and I, I have a really good site up, but it needs to be updated. And it's I've had a couple uh, hiccups here and there with the programming and stuff. But DaveRethid.com. <laughs> and... Uh, and the age that we live in, man, I mean, like, everything is so instant. Like, everybody wants everything right now, and it's, like, it's not really the way it used to be. So, like, Facebook is, right. like, so perfect for that. Because, like, with Facebook, like, I have so many people on Facebook that, you know, I correspond with my fans that way. People talk to me and ask me questions, and I find that to be the best way. Like, traditional websites are cool. Like, it's cool to have an official site. But right. I find that Facebook is so now, like it's so interactive. It's like there's no way to, do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
so that's pretty cool. I enjoy that a lot. So so anybody can hit me up on Facebook that way. I'm always I'm on, I'm on there quite a bit talking to the fans and stuff. Hello, this is Dave Rethid, and you're listening to Mars Attacks with my good buddy Victor. Crank it up.
little devil's roadmap coming off of the Call of the Flames, off of the Shredding the Envelope album. Check that out on iTunes, uh, or you could purchase the entire album. Uh, I believe it's available on CD Baby. And um, yeah, great, great guy, Dave. Can't say enough good things about him. Again, he's helped out a lot uh, with what we're doing with the Classic Albums column. And uh, other sites I mentioned before that are coming on board and helping out. We have people from Brave Words, uh, Iron City Rocks, Metal Assault, Martin Popoff, Piercing Metal, Dose of Metal, Metal Storm, Blistering.com, GotGent.com, The Number of the Blog, CerebralMetalHead.com, MetalUnderground.com, True Cult Heavy Metal, Death Metal Baboon, PostBlogsAs.com, TheMetalInsider.net, I'm sorry, it's MetalInsider.net, HeavyMetalAbout.com, Hard Radio, Gunshy Assassin, Lamb Goat, Maximum Threshold, obviously Talking Metal, and we also have one of the great, great editors from over at Metal Sucks who has lent his comments as well. And uh, check out all those great sites. Again, these are sites that I've reached out to and who are going to be sending us comments here and there for the Classic Albums column. Also want to uh, mention Dave Reffitt's guitar, uh, Esoteric Guitars. Awesome, awesome guitars. Been looking at the site these last few days. Would love to uh, to pull the trigger and uh, buy one of them. Have a lot of great specs. Have the blackout pickups and uh, double truss rods in the neck and uh, Floyd Rose and everything else. And um, would again would love to pull the trigger, but with a newborn. Uh, <laughs> refurbishing a house that we'll be moving into hopefully within the next few months. Uh, probably a very hard sale at the moment here in the household, but uh, we'll see down the road. Uh, in any event, this episode also features Mark Hunter from Chimera. He sort of inspired that rant at the beginning of the episode. And um, yeah, you know... Um, there are very few people that make any money off of the music industry. Uh, I've said this on a few occasions. Uh, I spend I, I spend more money than I do uh, make money off of this. I don't make any money off of doing these podcasts or having the site or anything else. Uh, I'd love to, uh, but it is what it is, <laughs> you know. Uh, that's just how things go, and I spend you know money on hosting costs and everything else, and you know gotten ripped off by a few different web developers along the way. Would like to revamp things, but for now, you know, uh, can't do it, and uh, hopefully will at some point in the future. But that's just uh, you know again the nature of the beast. In any event, let's get into a little Chimera. This is also coming off of the Age of Hell. This is Losing My Mind. After that, we'll jump right into the interview with Mark.
Just right off the bat, uh, and I'm, I hope I'm not butchering the name of, of the band, but uh, I take it that you guys are big fans of the Atlanta band uh, Doth. Yeah. <laughs> um, we uh, met those guys on tour, and uh, we, we toured Europe, uh, Europe in uh, 2009, and they were one of the groups that came with us. And we just had a great time with them and hit it off and uh, found a lot of kindred spirit. And the guitar player, Emil, on that particular tour, uh, helped us out when our guitarist, um, Matt DeVries, needed to leave the tour because he uh, was expecting the birth of his first child. So, um, yeah, there's uh, been a... A friendship there now for a couple of years and um for those of you that know uh a couple of the guys are now jamming with a couple of the guys are now jamming with us and uh right yeah so definitely are a fan of their um, musical capabilities and uh uh most importantly though they're they're good friends okay and how difficult is it for a band like yours to go out and audition new people because obviously with the name that you guys have, uh, with the recognition that you have worldwide, uh, would it be just, you know, a big clusterfuck just to go out, advertise, we're looking for new members? Or does it obviously make more sense for you guys just to pan-pick guys that you know are going to work within the foundation that you have in the band? Exactly. You know, I've always um, 
thought it would be fun to hold auditions. You know, you hear great stories. Uh, I remember um, Rob Flynn telling me um, back when Machine Head have had a couple of lineup changes in themselves that he would always say, oh, man, you got to have auditions. That's the best part, you know, because you get... <laughs> you get some really interesting characters that come out of the woodwork. But I mean, nowadays, you know, people aren't flying to auditions. If you were going to, uh, audition, you could do it on YouTube. And, right. um, for me, it's, it's more about the people and the company that you're going to be with on the road. Um, the guys that have been in Camara for the past, uh, eight, 10 years, uh, are people that, known for a lot longer and um the people that you want to be on the road with you know um and spend time with so if somebody um can no longer you know be in the band for whatever reason um if they're going to be replaced you want to replace them with somebody that you're equally as comfortable with to spend um 23 hours uh, of the day with uh and uh, you know, finding a good musician is not as nearly as difficult as it is to find the right personality. Right. So, um, for us, behind the scenes, finding the right personality and trusting and knowing that they're um, just excellent musicians, uh, you know, the musicianship is, you know, strangely is... is I'm not worried about that. You know, it's the last thing on my right. mind. Like, I, I, I know Emil uh, can play Severed. I, I have no, <laughs> I have no question that he will be able to pull that off without any difficulty. Um, but you know, when it came when it came to the drummer situation, um, Austin, who was picked, uh, was a friend of Rob's, and I had not had a chance to meet him, um, so. You know, we actually flew him out and, you know, got a chance to hang out first for a while and and realized right off the bat that we had a lot of similar interests, we had a lot of similar drive, and hearing him play um, was uh, just a a big eye-opener, you know. Um, The the, the most difficult position to to replace was our keyboard situation because it's not like you... Um, want to find somebody that plays keyboards per se. A lot of our right. electronics are based on um, computers and MIDI and samples and just having good timing. So um, when it came to fill that position, the only only person I knew that was very computer savvy was uh, Sean from Duff uh, from hanging out on tour. He's just always, I mean, the guy like, he speaks computer language half the time. So you can't understand him. Uh, <laughs> um, so that you know, I knew right off the bat that he would be a good choice for that. I didn't know if he would have any interest uh, in filling the position. Um, it's kind of a weird position, you know. It's like what you know. Right. But uh, I called him, and right off the bat, he was super excited. He's been a fan of the band for a long time, and one of the, uh, one of his family members had actually been a keyboardist in the band. So. Um, it was something he'd always wanted to do. So for him, it was um, it was a no-brainer. And for me, that was exciting because uh, we got along so well on tour. I knew that having him around just um, on the downtime was, was going to be awesome. Cool. Yeah, and it's 
sort of uh, odd because you're taking the lead singer of a band and, you know, he's going to another position within another band that nobody, you know, previously knew that, you know, he'd be capable of, of doing all that. And yeah, He's doing it unbelievable. The shows he will be played. I mean, <laughs> he's bringing a real intensity in the, and the fact that he is uh, a front man, it's um, really been awesome having him back me up with uh, vocals. And uh, <laughs> it just, so- it just sounds really aggressive and um, we, we match really well. And, um, he understands kind of how to mimic certain tones or certain things, as you know, uh, from the albums and stuff. So uh, it can sound really similar to um, certain things. And also, he'll bring in his own and and make some stuff sound heavier. You know. Huh. Cool. Um, you actually use the word that, or you actually use the phrase that you were jamming with these guys. Are they going to be permanent members of the band, or is it just for this album cycle that they're working with you guys? You know, I, there's no sense in trying to look into the crystal ball any longer. Um, right. I kind of look at it, everything as, let's just take this at a day at a time, and as long as we're having fun and enjoying what we're doing, and it feels good and sounds right, then that's what it's going to be. Okay, that you fair know? enough. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know how to. You know, I don't know how to to answer because you never know what life is going to bring around the corner. Right. And you know, I had no idea come December we would be three band members less. Less. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, I just kind of look at it now. Was like, all right, I woke up today. Camera still exists, and I'm still having fun. I'm still having a good time. All right, let's let's yeah. see what let's see what the day brings. You know. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, a lot of times when I talk to different people, um, or or when I put my shows together and I try to talk to the listeners that I have, you know, a lot of people have a hard time disassociating, you know, musicians from real life. You know, mm-hmm. everyone goes through, you know, similar situations. You guys are up on stage, you know, what, an hour, two hours, maybe max, uh, depending on the band. But you go through the same shit that everyone else goes through. And, you know, given the history that the band has with, you know, changing members and everything else, I mean, that makes sense because you never know, uh, given the way things are today, economy-wise and everything else, what tomorrow holds, so... Exactly, and that's all. This is is a lot of that. Um, you know, guys that left the band, they don't they don't leave the band because um, we can't stand doing it, or they don't want to play music, or they don't you know they don't believe in the band or anything like that. It's you know, dudes get married and they're like, you know, what? I want to have a kid. You know what? This salary yeah. isn't going to be able to help me afford to have a feed a family and. Um, that's understandable, you know, and especially yeah. if you have another talent that can that can bring you. Uh, whereas with whereas my headspace is, I devote my life to doing this band, and I eat because of this band. So I have no desire to do anything but this band, and um, right. and hey, sometimes that's really difficult too, and sometimes it's like, man. I don't want to do this band today, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got to I got to turn it off, you know. And uh, but you know, it's like like you said, we're all we're all human. We all uh, go through the same exact things, you know. I went I went through high school. I went through puberty. 
uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I still get acne. I mean, you know, um, it, it, we're all the same uh, humans, and it's just a different, uh, different life path that I've chosen is to create music for uh, people to get their emotions out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, with regards to the album, The Age of Hell, did you guys intend on doing something different on this album, or did the material that you guys put together just all organically come out? Well, we had started writing in 2010, and um, we were scheduled to go into the studio, I want to say February of 2011. And come around December time, I want to say, I think we had like around 14, 15 songs written, and I just didn't feel that uh, what we had come up with was excellent by any means, and I had this drive to do something great, and you know, I liked a couple things here and there, a couple parts, but I just felt we could do so much better, and um, really wanted to experiment in the studio and kind of create as we went along. And um, I find that you know maybe something that's written in January doesn't feel as fresh uh, 11, 12 months later, and you're in a total different headspace than something you wrote a long time ago. And so there was like a feeling of this, let's just kind of start from scratch uh, now, especially that um, we decided to make the album without our drummer. We knew we would be able to, um, like the floodgates would be open because we would have our producer play drums who is a very versatile musician and, and kind of a chameleon and can jam with anybody. You know, he can get up and play all the, the crazy drum fills you hear on our new album and turn around and produce uh, a rap single and then go jam with a Serbian band. <laughs> you know, he's just, a, he's just a musical virtuoso. So having him not only play the drums and bring in this jazz uh, rush type flair to the drum fills, which you don't really hear in metal too often, um, it was exciting and to have him be, you know, part of like the conductor and uh, which he's always kind of helped being our, you know, uh, helped with our songwriting here and there, from producing our albums over the years. So we knew we, we had the confidence in writing um, and knew we could come up with some some cool things. And uh, it just it was difficult to you know take on as many roles as we needed to. And um, but at the same time it was fun, and we tried to keep it as positive as possible. And and it was an exciting experience because here we had a lot of songs that were just uh, being created out of thin air and um, they stayed, they maintained this freshness throughout. And there was this, you know, little bit of you're holding on to the edge of your seat because you don't know how the song's going to turn out. You know, you can write it and like play this guitar and lay down all the foundations and I could go to sing over it and it sucks. Uh, but luckily, <laughs> <laughs> luckily we got through uh, virtually everything and, um, really proud of how it came out and uh, thought that um, thought we did the be- I definitely know that we did the best we possibly could and then some it's interesting you mentioned that most people when you talk to them about an album being written and recorded they never admit to being surprised by 
you know, what they're putting together. It's usually, I don't know, you know, I had an idea of how it was going to turn out, but, you know, once you get in there with a producer and the other members of the band, I'm sure that there's a certain amount of tweaking that goes on to, you know, Mm -hmm. propel the material. And, I mean, obviously this album definitely shows a a certain amount of matureness and a, a definite amount of evolution from the past few albums. Well, yeah, thank you. I, I, I think that, you know, as the way I look at, I guess, songwriting in, in this point of my life and during this time period is the music's always there. It's always within, you know, if you can pick up your guitar and then write and have the luxury of having it recorded right then and there and making it sound good, it's no right. different than recording it in your bedroom as a demo. So I don't think, you know, I don't need this, uh, let's listen to it over and over again repetitively and critique it and practice it a million times. I think if you're a good enough musician and you have the ability, you should just be able to, you know, like a rapper can get up and grab a microphone and spit 16 bars off the top of his head a right. guitar should be able to pick up and write uh, a verse and a chorus riff, and this should be awesome right off the, you know, I mean, some stuff will suck here and there, just like some rapper right. verses will suck, but, you know, uh, that's the type of musician I guess I prefer to be rather than this, let's practice this song a thousand times before we get it right to go into the studio, and it feels, it's always felt a bit monotonous to me. Right, and I mean, sort of doesn't make sense if you're going to be pl- if you're ultimately only going to be playing the song once in the studio and you may never play it live you know what's <laughs> what's sort of the point right. of practicing it 300 times you know there's well there's there's a there's another side of the argument you know there's okay. there's, there's uh, doing an album the way I'm describing is expensive you know, you can you can be prepared and know exactly everything and every move you're going to make, and you just go down and spend two weeks or ten days, or whatever, and just nail it and hammer it out, and and you and you save money this way, and um and you know some bands like benefit from performing uh, the songs in a repetitive manner, and they're they sound better, you know. But again, I don't think anyone would know the difference. From if I told you which song was written eight months ago versus one that was written eight days ago, right? You would have no clue. Well, and you know, going through the history and evolution of of metal, how many songs, how many songs that ended up being classics? Do you you know hear people say, "Oh no, you know, I wrote that three minutes before we were about to go into the studio yeah. and and track it," you know? So you never know. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. A great example of that is uh, for some sugar on me uh, from Def Leppard. When you watch the, which is arguably their, their biggest song. Um, right. That song, they had already recorded the album and they were ready to leave and the singer was tinkering around on the guitar, just messing around and sang that melody. The producer, Mutt Lang, took one look at him and said, that's the best melody I've heard in 10 years. We need to record, we need to record this right now. And the uh, right. label didn't want to spend the money. The band didn't want to do it. And he's like, no, you got to do it. And boom. And you just get, that's what I mean. Music comes from within. It, it doesn't matter how it's written. It doesn't matter. You know, it's just, if, as long as the ending product is, worthy of that band's name and it's good music and good material and people like it and it does something for them, great. 
Right. Yeah, the song I was thinking of when we were discussing that was uh, Black Sabbath's Paranoid, which is arguably their biggest song as well. And same deal, they needed one last track, and they wrote it supposedly three minutes before they tracked it. So go figure. (laughs) Yep. Um, As far as the release of this album, uh, in the UK, you guys did something different. You released the album for free with Metal Hammer Magazine. Why did you guys decide to release the album in this fashion? Well, uh, the UK has always been um, a special place for us. It's, we've, since we went over there, they were the, kind of the first country that um, really accepted us outside of, our, outside of America. Uh, we've played some of the biggest shows of our career over there in uh, Download Festival and um, over 60,000 people, and and we've had um, a few unfortunate circumstances where we've had to cancel a couple of tours and here and there, and it's basically our way of just saying, hey, sorry, we had to cancel a couple of tours, and thank you for all the years of support and for all of the uh, some of the best memories that we've had of being in the band and for rec- recognizing that uh, the UK is the first country there to recognize Camira outside of America. And it was an idea our manager had uh, as well to team up with Metal Hammer, who have always been big supporters of our band. And uh, they're really like the first and only magazine to have Camira on, on a cover. And uh, I was on the cover in 2004. And, <laughs> um, so it's just... Um, a cool way to pair up, say thank you, and another, also another way for a lot of new people to hear our music right. um, that might might not have heard us before. As this goes out to subscribers and um, and whatnot that uh, have not heard Chimera before, um, will now get a chance to. Okay. We try to do it with a couple. We try to do it with a couple. Uh, ap- you know, after afterwards, but it was like, you know what? Let's just do it with Metal Hammer. <laughs> we're like, yeah, well, well, I wonder if somebody else would want to do it too, because it seems like such a good idea. But we stuck, right. we stuck with it to the to the original idea, and you know that was just like a quick two minute, like, huh? I wonder if you could do it with a whole bunch, because we'd never heard of it before, right. and we'd never heard of another band releasing an album, and was like, well, you could do this worldwide, you know, but it's like, eh, let's just do it here. Gotcha. So I mean, somewhere down the line, if you guys decide to uh, put out another album at some point. Uh, we could possibly see it release worldwide in the same uh, manner. Is this more or less just a uh, like a, an experiment for you guys? Yeah, I think it was. But uh, you never know. I mean, I think it's you're just gonna have to come up with more and more fun things to do to keep it fresh. You know, I'm all about the. Um, the excitement of it, you know, like what's right. so cool about just releasing an album, you know? Um, so to try to do different things each time, um, is always exciting. And I look forward to having to release something else because that means you get to be creative again and come up with some new ideas. Gotcha. Okay. Um, the band has been associated with a bunch of different shows, Mythbusters. You guys were on the farm club way back when, and with, uh, death clock as well. Uh, has this type of exposure helped or hindered the band to an extent? Uh, definitely helped. Um, even to this day, I, I want to say like, 
well, we were on Farm Club in 2000. It was 11 years ago. And, you know, to, to us, it's like looking back at an old yearbook picture. You kind of get that embarrassing feeling. <laughs> but right. I, can't, I, I can't tell you how many people um, still to this day come up to me after a show and say either I've been listening to you since Farm Club or I got into you because of Farm Club. happens huh. every, every show. Um, Death Clock, we, we made a lot of fans from, from that uh, tour as well, and it's cool seeing our name on the <laughs> Mini Mart. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty awesome, uh, uh, as I'll admit, and uh, never expected it. You know, it was kind of a thing that I, I had heard about it. And same thing with Mythbusters. We had no idea. Like, we found out from fans, you know. <laughs> so it, it's um, pretty cool uh, to experience. I know that we have a friend working on a very popular show right now, that uh, they're working on getting some of our artwork in one of the characters' rooms, a uh, poster from huh. the album. Uh, I don't want to jinx it, though, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'll give a hint. It's a, it's a very popular stoner show on Comedy Central. So. Ah, okay. Hopefully it works out. Hopefully it works out, and uh, you'll see a Camaro poster in the, in the room of one of the characters. Okay. And um, a few months back, there was a cover that you guys did of uh, Wild Thing, obviously because of the whole Charlie Sheen thing that was going on. Uh, whose idea was it for you guys to cover that track? Um, I think it was mine. I was just in the studio, and when you're bored, you're kind of flipping, you know, I do the same shit everyone does, just flip through your uh phone or laptop and everyone was just going nuts on social media feeds uh twitter and facebook it's just charlie she knows charlie she knows charlie she knows posting links and i was like man we should cover wild thing and post it like right now and capitalize on this phenomenon and it'd be a great way to uh let everyone know we have a new album coming out in august at the same time and um so we kind of all looked at each other like really like, we're doing this? <laughs> and um, we're like, yeah, screw it, let's do it. And, you know, it, it took us, you know, a couple hours, and the next morning we had it all ready to go and put it up online and um, just let people have a laugh with it. And uh, our local radio station picked up on it and shouted us out and this and that, and it was cool. You know, it was just fun for the moment, and... Um, and, you know, and the whole time you're listening and watching, it just a new album this August, you know. <laughs> cool. Yeah, so, I mean, it's sort of uh, indirectly or subliminally. Yeah, there you go. So that's mm -hmm. cool. Uh, a few of the listener questions that I mentioned before. There's someone that sure. wrote from here in Spain, and um, he mentions that, um, or he asks why nothing off of uh, pass out of existence is ever played outside of severed. Um, it is. It's just um, few and far between, I guess. I want to say that the <laughs> last Christmas show we played uh, Dead Inside, Split, uh, Painting the White to Gray. Um, basically, for a long time, we've had a problem with that album. Um, just weren't proud of how it came out. So it kind of has this negative connotation attached to it where 
you don't really feel comfortable playing the songs and you know, we're not comfortable in our own skin and confident with it just because we almost have, like I said earlier, looking back at a old high school <laughs> uh, yearbook, you feel embarrassed. But like this, uh, right. you know, like you, we feel that we have evolved so much from that time period. Um, but when we started going back to some of the stuff and, and playing it, 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 found, it, we found it had a new relevance. And there's so many bands out, uh, now that were inspired by that album and came out because of it. Your bands like Whitechapel and Mirror and Suicide Silence all, um, mentioned that Pass Out was like their biggest inspiration and this and that. And I'm like, what? Really? That album? <laughs> um, so, um, it's kind of, you know, rekindled a bit of, uh, desire to play some of those tracks again. And, um, it's starting to feel good and it, we can pull it off in a manner where we don't feel unhappy. We don't want to just play it just to, you know, appease people. We want to play stuff that we like. And, um, right. so yeah, it was just kind of like getting over this, like, Ugh, you know, you kind of got to get over yourself. <laughs> That'd be the best way to describe it. <laughs> right, I got gotcha. you. Um, someone else asked or asks, excuse me, um, what your biggest influences are when writing lyrics. I try to go into um, my soul and just really put out the things that. I need to get out of my system and try to put and try to articulate them in a way that um, a listener, whoever they may be, can relate to it and, and understand it in some way. And um, so it's it's definitely life and uh, the experiences of what I've gone through. And I usually don't pull very far back. I'll usually just go like from album to album and, and talk what's happened in that time frame. Um, sometimes I will coincide with, I'm a big movie guy, so I'll, I'll be inspired to sing about a personal situation, but mask it with, um, imagery that I, I'm almost singing about a movie at the same time. For example, on the last album, uh, an example of that would be the song, The Disappearing Sun, where I'm writing about uh, demons, inner demons chasing thoughts, for, but I am also vividly describing the movie Sunshine. Okay. So I would kind of look at, you know, I kind of watch that movie and I'm like, oh man. And then like the imagery and I think when I think about the imagery and when I articulate it, I am like, all right, I am uh, connecting it to my life the way that will paint a picture that's just broad and vast. But if someone were to ask, and I'm like, oh, well, you, you would never think that. But now that I've told you that, you can look at it and clearly see right. uh, if you know the film, you're like, oh. <laughs> it's really strange how he did that, you know. Right. It's one of those. So that, you uh, know, it's, it's life and life with an occasional movie thrown in here and there. Okay. Cool. Um, let's see. Someone else asks what the secret is of you, uh, Rob and Matt, keeping everything together with the band all these years. 
Well, I would say there is no secret, and we haven't done a very good job doing The secret is, for a band to exist, is you have to have it be your life 24-7. You have to take the good with the bad, and um, that's the only way it will work for you. And, uh, you know, if other things come up in life um, that prevent you from being able to do that and give you 100%, then you're hurting the team that way, you know? So, right. You know, you just kind of got to look, you got to take the good with the bad. And sometimes the going gets really, 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 really tough. So I don't think that we've held anything together. I think we've been holding on by the thread, uh, (laughs) our pants, whatever you will. But, you know, my heart's still in it. I still love doing it, you know, and despite what's happened, I look at it as, well, that's unfortunate, but, you know, at least I'm still able to do it. And the fans are like, hey, you know. We're, we got your back, and they're loving the new album, and that's all that you can hope for. Okay. And the last listener question is, how difficult was it for you guys to come out of Cleveland? <laughs> you know, I don't know that it was as hard as, as maybe it would be nowadays. Um, in our era, we were very fortunate to have a very strong metal and hardcore scene in the 90s and late 80s. Um, We had bands like Integrity and um, Nine Inch Nails had come from Cleveland. Uh, The original singer of Faith No More was from Cleveland, the singer of Tool. So you kind of heard like, uh, with Ohio, like you'd kind of heard like other bands doing well, you know, and that gave you the motivation to, wow, you know, people from our hometown have done some pretty big things, and um, you could be a part of that as well. So it, ins- it inspired because we had a good scene. Nowadays, right. I don't know that, that it's like that anymore. Um, you know, we're, we've been doing it for a while, and, but I, uh, for metal, you know, I think it's been difficult. Um, we're starting to get a crazy hip-hop scene, though. But that doesn't really matter to the metal listeners out there now, does it? <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Um, and where should people go to keep up to date with the band? You know, either our Facebook page, which is Chimera Official. Um, somebody nicked our regular one, and we, for some reason, Facebook won't give it to us. <laughs> so you have to go to Chimera <laughs> Official. Uh, or the or our Twitter, which is Kamira Band. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, Kamira Mark. Um, so any of those are our website, Kamira.com, and they're all pretty much linked together, and we try to inform everybody with what's going on. And, um, I like the Facebook option for a lot of reasons because it you know goes into people's daily feeds, and they see that, and it's a good way to keep fans informed. And same with the Twitter. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Mark from Kamira, and you're listening to Mars Attacks.
The title track off of The Age of Hell by Chimera. I want to thank Mark for coming on board and doing this great interview with me. Also want to thank Dave Reffitt. Check out Shredding the Envelope. want to thank also Bill Overdy1 for hooking everything up with Mark. And uh, what else? Have a, a bunch of great interviews coming up these next few weeks. Uh, have, once again... Uh, the Tool album, and I mentioned next week, the classic albums column, the next one, the Tool, will be out on Halloween, so Monday the 31st. Uh, so I sort of jumped the gun there. Uh, in any event, uh, check out the Twitter account associated to Mars Attacks Radio and Podcast. It is Mars Aries 2005. Uh, you'll find a link to that right on MarsAttacksRadio.com. And uh, why you should sign up for the Twitter? Well, that's easy. Every time I interview someone, I'll say I just interviewed so and so. So that way you, you know, you're up to date with what's taking place. Or um, you could also find out the various radio shows that I do uh, when they come out. You know what's featured on the show and whatnot this week since it was uh it was actually my birthday yesterday uh so I did a bunch of tracks that were are some of my uh all time favorite tracks uh, a lot of it was a lot more classic stuff but uh just cool to uh you know throw some of those songs out there and uh, interesting birthday uh the downfall of uh, eta uh e t a the uh, Basque terrorist organization here in Spain, uh, unfortunately, was uh, was fairly close to a uh, terrorist attack that uh, that they performed back in the early 90s, about 50 yards away uh, from my grandmother's house here in Spain. So uh, it was uh, r- rather interesting, and um, so yeah, I've been lucky enough to. Uh, Lucky enough, or you know, unfortunate to have that and uh, and witness 9/11 in person. So there you have it. Uh, what else? The downfall of Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, the downfall and uh, you know, ultimate uh, killing or whatever you want to call it. But um, yeah, historic day uh, that uh, that I'll probably remember. And from here on out, on my birthday, you know, they'll probably bring that up. 
and uh, you know because of those anniversaries. Hopefully, uh, here in Spain, ETA keeps their end of the bargain. Wouldn't be the first time that uh, that you know they've signed the truce and that uh, they come back and you know terrorize the country again. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, we'll we'll wish and hope for the best. Anyway going to wrap things up extra long episode here uh thanks for listening thanks for putting up with my uh ranting there in the beginning uh that's just my opinion if if you know if you're if you don't like what i had to say that's cool too you know i think everyone's entitled to voice their opinion leave your comments right there on mars attacks radio remember you can subscribe to the podcast via itunes the radio show airs thursdays and fridays on markstriegelradio.com stream a um also i help program mark striegel radio so uh send me your feedback input at MarsAttacksRadio.com if there's anything you want to hear on the stream or if there's anything you want to mention regarding the episodes feel free to leave your comments right on the site or drop me a line via the email uh, also if you want to contribute to the classic albums column you're in a band, you're a producer uh, photographer involved in the music industry uh, so on and so forth drop me a line input at MarsAttacksRadio.com people are sending links to demos and this and that you know sometimes I do have a chance to check some of this stuff out if I have a chance and think that your band you know fits what we're doing or I enjoy what you guys have sent along I'll include it in an episode if there's time um, if not you know I apologize if I don't do so, but it isn't on purpose that, you know, I'm skipping over or whatnot. Uh, thanks again for listening and see you next time right here on the Mars Attacks podcast. We'll leave you with another track off of Age of Hell by Chimera. This is Trigger Finger. See ya.